You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. Good morning. What a pleasure to be in the house with you this morning. We get to be in this house, and then we go get to be in somebody else's house. That's a really fun thing, isn't it? Um, this, uh, today, actually, is Pastor Dave's last Sunday. They had a big party for him last week and roasted him. I found out things about Pastor Dave I didn't know. In fact, I think you should all call him Cruisin' Dave when you see him. Evidently, Cruisin' Dave is not the same as Pastor Dave. Um, and, uh, uh, but what a great fun our friends up the street are. What great fun. And um, so today is his last day, and we get to be with him. That's a, that's a real treasure. So you know how it is when you find something in the back of your closet that you had forgotten that you have, or like it's been a whole season, and you, you, know, you pull out your other your summer stuff, and you find something you didn't even realize you had or you've forgotten. It's like finding new clothes, and they're free. <laughs> or it's like when you pull out your winter coat, and you put your hand in the pocket, and there's a 20. Oh, man. And nobody knows about that 20 but you. <laughs> that's the best, isn't it? Well, I got to tell you, that's a little like what it has felt for me this year when I discovered Ezra all over again. I knew it was in the Bible. I have read Ezra many times, but it's like, it's like finding, sticking my hand in a pocket or reaching into the back of my closet and finding something I didn't realize I had. I thought I had the point of Ezra, but when I reached into it this year, I found something I'd never seen before. I stumbled over this one line, and it has stuck with me. It's chapter 3, verse 3. Despite their fear of the peoples surrounding them, they built the altar on its foundation. Oh man, do you hear it? Probably not. But for me, this was the best treasure. What got me in this line was that they were doing it backward. Here we are, here were the Israelites back in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple after 70 years in exile, and before they had laid a single brick on the building, they built the altar first. Does that strike you as odd? Sort of like putting your, your, installing your stove before you've built the kitchen. It's just weird, but they built the altar first, and that grabbed me. It still grabs me. Somehow it resonates deeply, like, like maybe that's the right order of things spiritually. It tells me that altars are important and that maybe I need to pay attention to my own internal altar. Is it, is it in need of repair? Does it need to be reclaimed, rebuilt, restored? That's what the study of, uh, this study, summer study of, of Ezra is about. It's about rebuilding the altars, about returning to our first love, making sure we've got the big rocks in first before we let our lives get overtaken by the details. But listen, there's even more to this story in Ezra. We'll find out, spoiler alert, that what looked like such a faithful choice, let's build the altar first. 
didn't necessarily result in changed lives or a transformed community. Oh, yeah, they did for a while, but they kind of did that thing the Israelites do. They just they went circular. So rebuilding the altar and the temple around it didn't fix everything. Altars get corrupted eventually. And that teaches me that there's more to it than just rebuilding. And that more is what we need, that more that we need is, is here in the heart. So this book and this study is about the more. It's about the more. It's in the invitation to look inside and ask, what's on my altar or which altar has my attention? Basically, this summer is about the quality of our faith. It's about getting back to the fundamentals. So we're going to dig into Ezra. Best way to engage the message, we always say it, is with your Bible and something to write on. And so to find Ezra... You have to, if you open your Bible basically to the middle, you'll find the Psalms. That's what usually it falls toward. Get to the first of the Psalms, and then you're going to flip back through Job and Esther and Nehemiah, and then Ezra is just before Nehemiah. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bibles were originally one book. They were separated in our scriptures somewhere around the 300s, about 800 years after Ezra's story begins. Since they're obviously two books um, or two chapters, two parts of one unit, this summer we're, we're still going to just look at the book of Ezra. Partly because it's the half of the pairing that gets the least attention, but mostly because this is the book that woke me up this year. And as I've read it over and over <laughs> and meditated on some of the pieces of this story, I've come to believe it has our attention because maybe God wants to say something to us about our faith and about the more. So our job this summer is to listen to this chapter in Israel's life and figure out why God might want the people who worship him at 478 Columbia Industrial Boulevard to be interested in this story of reclaiming, rebuilding, restoring, returning the altars of our heart, tending to our faith. So let's get a little bit of an overview first. That's what today is mostly about. The story of Ezra is a little book, and it's, but it spreads out. In fact, we find pieces of the story all over the Old Testament in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and Zechariah and um, Ezekiel. And the story spreads out over time. Just the 10 chapters of this little book take about 100 years. So Ezra starts in the middle of a story that's already in progress, and it assumes some things uh, it assumes we know all about Nebuchadnezzar destroying Jerusalem, burning the temple, stealing all the valuables off the altar. Huh. That's where we are when the story opens, and that's why we have no altar in here this morning. Makes me want to stop and ask, has somebody in this room had that experience of having the valuables stolen off your altar? So Ezra, Ezra assumes that we know the Israelites have been in exile in Babylon for 70 years and that there are generations of Jews now who have been born in exile, who know nothing but exile. 
Ezra assumes we know that Cyrus is now the king of Persia and that his armies have defeated Babylon and that Cyrus is now casting a new vision for that empire. So instead of destroying the idols of all the rival gods, which is the normal thing that new kings do, Cyrus welcomes foreign gods. In fact, he wants all the exiles and expatriates in his kingdom to worship their gods on the theory that the more gods you have in your corner, the better. (laughs) And so that's how the story begins. It begins with Cyrus calling the people of Israel back to their homeland to rebuild the temple to their God. So a foreign king can cover that base too. And with that much of an overview, we're going to stop right here and we're going to watch the Bible Project video because nobody quite says it like Tim Mackey. So we're going to watch that, this Bible Project video that, that, that kind of gives it an overview of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then we'll come back to Ezra chapter 1. Watch this. Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community, and then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support, and then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices and later the temple itself. The foundation laying ceremony and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend. He's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. 
And this, of course, generates a conflict, which Zerubbabel overcomes. But it's very strange, because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together, along with all of the nations, to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment, to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorce their wives, the story is very strange for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exiles should care about purity, but he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so the mixed results of the decree, this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. Which leads us to the next section about Nehemiah. He's an Israelite official serving in the Persian government, and when he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls, he prays and then gets permission from the Persian king Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls. The king even gives them an armed escort and all these resources. So after arriving in Jerusalem, he begins the building project, and he too faces opposition from the people who had already been living around Jerusalem. Once again, we face a tension in the story. The contemporary prophet Zechariah said that the new Jerusalem of God's kingdom would be a city without walls, that God's presence would surround it, that people from all nations would come and join the covenant people. But Nehemiah seems to operate with the opposite vision. He informs the people surrounding Jerusalem that they have no part in Jerusalem. And this, of course, provokes them to hostility. And so while Nehemiah carries out his vision for the city with integrity and courage. They have to build the city with armed guards to protect them. We keep wondering, could this whole conflict have been handled differently? And this all leads to the conclusion of the book in two movements, first positive and then negative. Ezra and Nehemiah combine forces to bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. They gather all the exiles together for a festival. They read and teach the Torah to all the people for seven days. And then they celebrate the ancient Feast of Tabernacles to remember God's faithfulness from the Exodus and the wilderness journeys. Then they offer a confession of their sins. They vow themselves to renew the covenant, follow all the commands of the Torah. And they finish with a great celebration over the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and we're thinking this could be the turning point, but it's not. The book ends on a huge downer. 
Nehemiah tours around the city, and he finds that the people have not been fulfilling their covenant vows. So Zerubbabel's work is undone as he finds the temple being neglected and staffed by all these unqualified people. He then discovers that Ezra's work is being compromised. He finds everyone violating the Torah, people are working on the Sabbath, and even his own work on the walls is involved because people are setting up markets around the walls of Jerusalem and working on the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he goes on a rampage. He's beating people up, he's pulling out their hair, and he's yelling, obey the commands of the Torah. And his final words are a prayer that God would remember him, that at least he tried, and the book ends. I mean, it's very strange, but we've been prepared for it, right? These anticlimactic moments have been woven into the book's design intentionally. And so it raises the question, what on earth does this book contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Well, remember, the book started by raising our hopes in the prophetic promises about the Messiah, the temple, the kingdom of God, and then none of it happens. So even though Israel is now back in the land, their spiritual state seems unchanged from before the exile. And while Ezra and Nehemiah, they do their best, but their political and social reforms among the people don't address the core issues of their heart. So what the book is pointing out is the same need highlighted by the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. What God's people need is a holistic transformation of their hearts if they're ever going to love and obey their God. And so the book ends on a downer, yes, but it forces you to keep reading on into the wisdom and prophetic books to find out what is God going to do to fulfill his great covenant promises. But for now, that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They do a great job, don't they? And can I just go on record as saying that I can be known as moody, but I have never beat anybody up or pulled out their hair. <laughs> so... I'm feeling actually pretty good about myself today. <laughs> so Ezra is a strange book. It begins hopefully, but it ends on these odd, you know, it has these kind of, these dips, these odd notes. Even when we break it up into sections, every section starts optimistically, but then kind of ends on a down note. And interesting, this is a side note, Jesus never mentions Ezra or Nehemiah never mentions them, never quotes from either of them. He never references this chapter in Israel's history. So why bother with a story, they ask the question in the video, that Jesus doesn't seem to emphasize and that doesn't seem to offer any kind of hopeful lesson? Well, I think it's there, or here, because this is ultimately a story about us. This is a story about good intentions and hard choices. It's a story about God's call to holiness and about our tendency to build altars on wrong foundations. Or sometimes to build the right altar, but in the wrong way. And it's about our soul tie. Listen to this. It's about our soul tie with the Pharisees. I mentioned that Jesus never once mentioned the book of Ezra or referenced it, but the Pharisees loved Ezra. Only Moses got more attention for them. They saw Moses and Ezra as the real founders of Judaism. Ezra was the man. He was a scribe, so he had a passion for the word of God and for the law of God that, that resonated with the religious elite who thought that knowing the law was everything. And that, friends, I believe is the real meat 
in the story Ezra tells. It's the difference of 12 inches. It's the difference between knowing the law and loving the Lord. It's the difference between, between being faithful and obedient in the head, but not allowing deep to call to deep. Not the way we're, we're and, and these two things, the law and the deep, they're not diametrically opposed, not at all, but when we allow the word to drip down from our heads into our hearts, well, there is a world in there, a world of rest found at the end of those 12 inches. There's a world of rest found there. So this is a story about rebuilding, reclaiming, restoring, returning to faith. The psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house or the altar, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, rest eating the bread of anxious toil. I need to read that again. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Unless the Lord builds the altar, those who build it will make a mess of it. Lord, give us the grace to rest on your altar. To receive your gift of faith, which will give us rest. Amen. So we're going to look at just at the first four verses, the opening lines of Ezra, before we finish today. I'm going to read them for you or read them with you. If you've got your Bible, open to Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, remember that, I mean, just that, that, that Cyrus didn't just show up out of the blue. He's not somebody's plan B. He's actually God's plan A. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me, and I want you to underline that phrase, the God of heaven. That's kind of big for a foreign king to be calling God the God of heaven because this foreign king actually thought he was the God of everything. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord. Notice that any of the people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judea, sorry, in Judah, and build the temple of the Lord. So, so anybody who wanted to go could go. Everybody didn't have to go. Any of you who wants can go up and build a temple to him at Jerusalem in Judah. The God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. In any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Evidently, God, in, uh, God intends to restore it. So you kind of get that feeling back when um, in the Exodus, when the Israelites walked out of Egypt with the, with the um, silver clanking in their cloaks. It's kind of the same thing. You're going to have everything you need for the rebuilding. Don't worry. Don't, 
Don't come at this for the mindset of scarcity or out of a spirit of poverty. You're going to have what you need. So the story opens with that kind of hope. Cyrus was a new king, not Jewish, who allied himself with lots of gods, although he considered himself, as I said, the king of the universe. So among those allies, he had a pretty high view of himself. So why did God use a pagan king to advance the work of God's people? And he didn't just grab him at the last minute. Remember, we just said this. Verse 1 tells us the leader was prophesied by Jeremiah. In other words, he was planned for. We'll find all kinds of people in this story that don't necessarily follow the one true God. But God uses them, and that's a good thing to remember. I want you to write this down. God can use whoever God wants. God can use whoever God wants to restore his people, for his glory, and for his purposes. Have you guys noticed, have you been seeing, um, it's been popping up on my feed, so I, that's how I know about it. I don't want to pretend like I have some deep connection with, with uh, women's collegiate softball. But, um, but the Oklahoma Sooners women's softball team won the World Series this week, this past week, right? Is that right, Bill? Am I right on this? Thank you, Julia. Yeah. And, and man, have you seen their interviews? These college student girls, people will ask them, well, how do you keep up? You know, the, the, it's been an up and down year for you. How, do you. how are you keeping it going? And these girls are saying, well, it's funny you should ask because we've discovered that we can be happy about circumstances and our happiness gets crushed, but when our joy is in the Lord... I mean, they're saying this on television to a secular audience. When your joy is in the Lord, you can, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You've got this solid rock of joy, and that's what we as a team have been floating on. That's an amazing thing. They're, they're using their platform to talk about Jesus. They're doing interviews, and they're talking about their faith in Jesus, whether they win or lose. They are getting an incredible amount of publicity because they are the world champion whatevers that they are, and they are giving it all to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? God can use whoever God wants. So in these first verses of Ezra, there are more people than we can actually see. We see the people who decide to take Cyrus's offer to go back and rebuild. We don't see the ones who never left Jerusalem, but they're there. And we'll see them in the next chapter, actually. Jeremiah and Zechariah both mention them. It isn't like the land was empty while the exiles were gone. There were people there. And they even fasted and prayed to God. But the prophet Zechariah questions the character of their faith. Because these guys were not evidently motivated to rebuild the temple themselves. In fact, they let it go into disrepair. Not motivated to, build, to rebuild the altar. Sure, they were doing spiritual things. But for whom? So there's a lesson there. Doing all the stuff doesn't necessarily make you less vulnerable to apathy or legalism. Just like being in exile doesn't make you less desirable to God. There's another group in the story that we don't see. The ones who stayed behind in Babylon. You remember we said that, that, that Cyrus said anybody who wants to may go up, but that doesn't mean that everybody did go back to Jerusalem. There's a whole group that never went back up to Jerusalem to re rebuild, maybe because they didn't have the fire for it. Or, you know what? The devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Things here in Babylon may not be perfect, but 
kind of comfortable here. Maybe they didn't because of fear. I don't know. What I learned from all these people is that it isn't where you start from, it's where you end up. Whether you're still in exile or in the right place but for the wrong reason or struggling to get home again, it isn't where you start from that God cares about, it's where you end up. So when we're talking about restoring, rebuilding, renewing, reclaiming our faith, it's, it's, this, is, this is good news for us. So there, there are people Cyrus is sending back to Jerusalem. And these are people who have been hanging out in exile. And now they get to go home so they can rebuild. And they do it. They, they build an altar. And then they eventually complete a temple. And, 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 and yes, they will be chastised and reminded of God's law and their distance from it. And yes, they will be challenged to divorce themselves from unholy bargains and pagan tribes. They are called to rebuild their faith. But their story, we hear from our video, doesn't end well. They begin in hope, but eventually they fall apart again. They never really let go of Babylon. And so we discover at the end of all their rebuilding that a people can get all the stones in place, build the right community with the right look and the right whatever, and still miss the heart of God. You know, it's fun to make fun of altar calls. You know, 15 verses of just as I am. So there's, there's somebody out there, there's somebody out there who's going to come and we're going to stay here and make the rest of us, we're all held hostage until that person gives in and comes down. I get it. But I have to say, I have had several life-changing, memorable experiences down at the altar. I first, the first time I ever heard um, a prophetic word spoken into my life. I mean, God spoke to this little, she must have been 13, 14, 15 years old at the most, little Carolyn down at the altar. And God, and the Lord gave me a prophetic vision that I, is, is as vivid to me today as it was all those decades ago. And my first semester in seminary, I had another one of those amazing altar experiences. And I've told this story before, um, but I'm going to tell it again. <laughs> I've been out of school when I, got, when, I, when I went to seminary. I've been out of school for about 10 years. And so I was out of the habit of doing all the reading and the studying and the papers and the tests. And man, seminary is all about the reading and the studying and the papers and the tests. Let me get an amen from Catherine. <laughs> yeah. I was a mess because I really wasn't ever a great academic. I had hardly started the journey. Already I felt defeated, middle of the first semester. And I remember this moment. It was in chapel. And, I, and they did an altar call. And I went down to the altar, and I begged God to get me out of this. I told him I would, I would suffer any amount of humiliation. I would give back all the money. Just get me out of this, God. And in that moment of desperation, I heard a voice. And I can still hear that voice today as clearly as I heard it then. It was the voice of the Lord. He said, Carolyn, I will write the wisdom on your heart. I didn't realize it at the time because I was not the brightest bulb in the seminary box, but he was quoting scripture at me. 
It's that place where God was, says in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach one another or say to one another, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. <laughs> I mean, man, imagine my delight when I saw that the Bible Project guys connected Ezra, which I was already deep into, with this very passage in Jeremiah 31. This was a foreshadowing, this passage. This was a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. When, when God sent Christ into the world, he took the laws and commandments that he had written down for the people of Israel and he put them into the person of Jesus Christ. And then he promised all people everywhere that anyone who took Jesus Christ into themselves, who placed Jesus on the altar of their hearts, would have these laws in us, in, in our minds, but, but much more than our minds. Remember, dripping down, written into our hearts. I will write the wisdom on your heart. That's what I heard that day in seminary. And when I heard it, I didn't know it was in the Bible, but I knew I had a word from the Lord. And so I want you to hear that my ministry really began at the altar with a word from the Lord. I will write the wisdom on your heart. That's a faith word. And I'd love to tell you that from that day on, from the moment I stood up from that altar, I have never wavered from that hope, never lost faith in that promise. I'd love to tell you that, but I can't because I'm an Israelite. Are there any other Israelites in the room? I get faith and I lose faith and I get it back and I lose it again at an embarrassingly rapid rate. I put myself in exile, and then I resolved to rebuild, usually on January 1st or at Easter. And then as hard as I try to stay the course, white-knuckling it, I lose it again. Most of my failure is because I try too hard. In fact, that was the word of the Lord for me just this week. So I resonate with that line from Ezekiel when God says, I will remove the heart of stone from you and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be my people and I will be your God. Who is the, who is the actor in this passage? God. Who does the work? God. The emphasis is on God doing, not me doing. That resonates because I want a new heart. I want a new altar for Jesus. And it resonates because I know it isn't me who can make that happen. We're not the ones who build the altar. It comes from the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. All I can do is somehow figure out what in the heck surrender means so I can get in it. You know? Somehow, I've got to figure out what it means to say, okay, God, this time for real, for real. Everything I have is yours. Anybody else here needing a moment like that? 
Tim Mackey says, you can do everything to get ready for it, but ultimately the renewal of the human heart isn't something we can generate for ourselves. God does the work. That is a good word. We cannot generate it, but we can open ourselves to it. We can surrender the altars of our own making to Jesus. We can recognize the places where we've built the right altar on the wrong foundation. We can invite him to reclaim our hearts, rebuild his altar, return our souls to him, restore Christ to the altar of our hearts. What I'm saying is that today, today, whether you are in exile, whether you never left home or you're heading back, you can do that very fundamental thing that and invite Jesus to claim or reclaim his place on the altar of your heart. How long has it been since you've done that very fundamental thing? On Tuesday, our church will vote to remain in or leave the United Methodist Church. That's a big deal. For some of us, there is grief in this choice. And for others, there's relief. The blessing is that this chapter will soon be over. And our future will be a little less questionable. And after that vote, we'll get to decide together where we go next. And, and then we can get back to being the people of God in Evans, Georgia. And that sounds really good to me. But here's what I can promise you. The vote on Tuesday won't fix everything. It won't line us up perfectly with God's will. The place we will land will not be perfect. Why? Because it's us. <laughs> you know, what's the old thing? You know, <laughs> if you find a church with perfect people, don't join it, and it won't be perfect anymore. We're not perfect people. There's no perfect way through. The human heart is always bent, bent toward destruction. Always. So does it mean we should never rebuild, reclaim, restore? Oh, absolutely not. What it does mean is that, and, and this is the great gift, <laughs> there is no limit to the invitation to begin again. No limit. The glorious news, whether we're talking about denominational issues or what's happening in our homes or what's happening in our hearts, is that a merciful and gracious God has a bottomless desire to see you and me begin again. <laughs> Praise God. So every act of surrender, every return after exile, every circumcision of the heart, every rebuilding of a true altar on a better foundation is honored by God. So here it is. Here's the punchline for today. Whatever your situation, whatever the cause of your exile, you don't have to stay in Babylon. You have an invitation to come home, to reclaim your faith, to rebuild your altar, to restore your relationship with Jesus. And if you think that you should feel any shame because you found yourself somehow without faith in the middle of your life, I'm here to tell you, you are not the first person to lose it and you won't be the last. 
You're not the first person with great intentions who let your heart get cool. And you won't be the last. There's no shame in Christ, my friends. There is no shame in Christ. Will you stand? There's no altar. There's no altar. No altar. There's no altar in the house this morning. There's no altar in the house this morning on purpose. That's kind of the point. The whole thing is about getting your inward eyes to train on the face of Jesus. Can you do it? Can you bow your head right now? Close your eyes. And do it. Jesus. Before we build an altar in this house, which we will be doing over the next few weeks, I am asking you to build the altar in our hearts. Build that altar first. Jesus. Build that altar first. Give us a grace, God, to reclaim, rebuild, restore, return. Give us a a humility, God, to just, (laughs) just get on our knees and get with you and see you, trust you and believe in you again. Jesus. And if you'll do that, we'll be so grateful. Is there anyone in this room who's ready to give your faith, your heart to Jesus or to give it to him again? Just lift your hand right where you are. If you're just ready, give your heart to Jesus or give it to him again. Yeah. Jesus. Jesus. Pray over these, God, who are honest enough and desperate enough to say yes, that you will honor that. Honor that move and build a new altar, Jesus. We love, honor, and worship you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.